This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Good evening and welcome. Uh, it's uh, my joy and privilege tonight to be able to introduce Dr. Anthony Clark for his inaugural Lindemann Lecture. And uh, for those of you from outside of the academy, I thought I'd just give a brief explanation of uh, why uh, he has that title, the Lindemann Chair. Uh, academic institutions are especially appreciative of gifts that help us most directly in uh, helping us educate our students. And the best way from my point of view of doing that is for donors to endow uh, chairs and professorships because these positions uh, allow talented scholars to do their work. It gives them extra resources for doing their research and scholarship. Uh, and it also, at the same time, honors the ideals of the donor and of the person who's honored in the name of the chair. So the Edward B. Lindemann Chair was established in 1982 to honor Whitworth's 14th president. And the holder of this chair is to enhance the academic program for Whitworth students and faculty through contributions to general education and to faculty development. The individual is charged with enriching public conversation about significant issues as a Christian scholar, and we'll certainly see that done tonight. Dr. Clark was selected by a committee of faculty, most of whom held uh, endowed positions as the holder of the 2015 to 2019 Lindemann Chair. The committee was impressed with Tony's strong academic record as an excellent teacher and as a groundbreaking scholar. Anthony E. Clark earned his PhD in Chinese history and culture from the University of Oregon in 2005, go Ducks. Um, he studied languages and cultural history at leading universities in China and in France. Clark joined Whitworth's faculty in 2009 after serving as a professor of Chinese history at the University of Alabama. And he has been a recipient of several scholarly awards to conduct his research on Christianity in China, including year-long grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, American Council of Learned Societies, and the Fulbright Foundation. He's also been a researcher at the Vatican Secret Archives. In addition to his articles, reviews, papers, and chapters, Dr. Clark has published several scholarly books, including his most recent book, Heaven in Conflict, on the history of Franciscan missionaries during the Boxer Rebellion. One reviewer of Heaven in Conflict praises the book not just as a significant and superb contribution to modern Chinese history and uh, to the history of Catholic uh, mission, but as offering a new methodology that seeks deeper meaning from the events of earthly history. This is what the reviewer says. Anthony Clark should be commended for offering us a history that invites us to ponder the ultimate futility of earthly triumph. It's a pretty uh, big thing to have done. 
in some ways, uh, Tony Clark is Whitworth's version of Indiana Jones. Uh, Tony is uh, floated across a river in Inner Mongolia on inflated sheepskins uh, and been kidnapped by a taxi driver in Guangzhou. And he's lived to tell about it, and we're glad of that. Tonight's lecture is one event in a series of events that Tony has organized as the public aspect of his work as Lindemann Chair. You should make it a point to view uh, China's Christianity, um, an exhibit of rare photographs and objects that's currently on display in Whitworth's library, and also to attend the scholarly symposium that Tony has organized um, on the topic of China's Christianity on November 5th. I'm proud to present Anthony Clark to give his inaugural Lindemann Lecture, An Elusive Dream, Religious Freedom, and the Reign of God. So I'm hoping it's working. Thank you, Dr. Simon, for that very kind. Let's hope that doesn't happen. Oh. I think it was because they were both on at the same time. So thank you all for being here. Um, I'm honored that you're here. And I should say that uh, my talk will take about 40 to 45 minutes. And afterward, there's a reception. And I, I should also say that um, many of the things that I'll say will seemingly go into uh, multiple directions. Um, there'll be some seeming tangents, but I promise everything will coalesce at the end into uh, some sort of uh, single melody. So just bear with me and it'll all come back together. I should say too that this, my talk was inspired by an experience I had in China recently. I visited a church in Beijing, and uh, as I was visiting the church, I noticed that there was a tall tree and beneath the tree, there was a, a very uh, lovely green patch of grass. And the, grounds, the groundskeeper was attending to the grass. It was the loveliest part of the entire church property. And so I naturally went to the groundskeeper and asked why. And uh, the answer was, was rather intense, I thought. He said that in 1966, in around June, a group of uh, Red Guards came to the church, and they pulled out the 80-year-old uh, Chinese pastor and took him to the spot beneath the tree, and they began to, to yell at him, you have no right to spread your false religion. You have no right to deceive the people. The pastor responded with something like this, but it is God who has rights. It is God who has true rights. So they began to torture him and uh, asked him to deny his faith, and then they buried him alive while he prayed. So um, my talk might seem rather serious, and, uh, but it also is, is inspired by this question of rights, of freedom, of intellectual uh, ideas uh, surrounding freedom. And... Um, in the background or high above us um, is, is God. I also uh, acknowledge here that I'm aware of the growing and unrelenting religious in intolerance occurring in the Middle East now, an intolerance that continues to displace and take the lives of countless persons 
under the injudicious uh, banner of the reign of God. I will not be discussing these atrocities because such actions, I think, begin in the realm of ideas. So I'll confine my remarks to ideas so that we might better frame how we envision religious freedom and the reign of God. Ideas are the engine of human action, and greed, as much as religious radicalism can compel persons to control and confine the religious beliefs and practices of others. I would argue that our own wealth-obsessed culture often appears to prioritize wealth above goodness. Socrates, quoted by Plato, once exclaimed that, quote, wealth does not bring goodness, but goodness brings wealth and every other blessing, both to the individual and the state, close quote. Ideas matter, whether they motivate cruelness based on religious belief or cruelness based on greed. So that said, I would like to begin my first talk as the Edward Lindemann Chair by conjuring two somber dichotomies in an effort to render a critique of how we think in modern society. And then I would like to make some surprising turns into Western philosophy, ancient China, Christian dogmatics, and modern China, and conclude with some remarks about religious freedom and the reign of God in our personal lives and the world in general. I won't explicitly confront many of what we think today, uh, or what we today consider pressing issues, such as race, gender, and sexual identity. Because all of these questions, I think, are best scrutinized after we have grown better acquainted with God's thoughts on these matters. I will, however, admit one perhaps controversial argument. I do not support the ideal of separating church and state as it is imagined today. For if God is indeed the ruler of all creation, then, then it is foolish to remove him from the rule of any government. That said, I'm not naive to the conundrums precipitated by radical theocratic dictatorships. But such governments are not Christ-like, which would render them more merciful and charitable. A sure sign that a government has grown distant from the creator is that it has become destructive rather than creative. So to the dichotomies. First, the Genevan Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau opened his work Du Contrat Social, The Social Contract, with the assertion that, quote, man is born free and is everywhere in chains. And second, among Raphael's most famous paintings are his School of Athens, which valorizes human genius, and his disputation on the Eucharist, which celebrates the insights of faith. When I hear others discuss this remark by Rousseau, it is almost always in the context of human potential, attained or suppressed. And when I visit Raphael's paintings in Rome, I see large crowds in adoration of the school of Athens, while I alone look at his depiction of faith. We humans love ourselves, and we seem little predisposed to surrender our apparent freedom for the freedom to attain our own desires, for the less apparent freedom of what we can assent to without an evident assurance of personal gain and liberation. The reality of evidence has replaced in our current society the evidence of reason. Said another way, 
Whereas Aristotle argues that humans are by nature rational beings, Rousseau's anthropology has inverted this assumption, suggesting that we are not rational creatures, but are rather the makers of our own purpose. As Alan Bloom echoes Rousseau's ideas, quote, there are no ends, only possibilities, close quote. Rousseau denies Aristotle's insistence on a teleology, that there is a purpose and aim for all things, and has made human desire the individual and the individual assent of the will dominant over any external law, such as the rule of God. So putting a Cartesian spin on Rousseau, we might describe his philosophy as an exclamation that I feel, therefore I am. And the better we feel, the better we are. So as I now turn to the dichotomy of human freedom and the reign of God, I suggest that we are living in a Rousseauian age. Still largely in the wake of Rousseau and the Enlightenment, it is painfully difficult for most of us to imagine surrendering our conditioned desire for freedom to the reign of God, whose reign comes with laws and a purpose-driven teleology that might require us to change course and even change our minds. Voltaire's reaction to Rousseau represents a better strand of Enlightenment thinking. When Rousseau sent Voltaire a copy of one of his publications in 1754, Voltaire replied in a letter, quote, no one has ever used so much intelligence to persuade us to be so stupid, close quote. Voltaire was unwilling to allow Rousseau's philosophy of feelings to supplant his own philosophy of reason. Well, I anticipate some will react to my support of Aristotle and Voltaire's resistance to Rousseau with the question, how can one be certain of what precisely is the aim and law of our lives? And even more, how can one be certain that her or his interpretation of God's will is the true interpretation? Inevitably, most discussions of God's will and aim revolve around the naughty, that's K-N-O-T-T-Y, philosophical puzzle of defining and discerning truth. But I'd actually like to leave a more protracted consideration of this question to my colleagues in philosophy. Though a few words from ancient China might help clear a path for engaging the subject of religious, religious freedom and the reign of God, and perhaps even the relentless question of truth. My scholarly work is in Chinese history, so I hope you'll understand my use of China as a case study for my subject tonight. We might simply ask, is it possible to know God's will for the world, or is the hope of knowing his laws in the end an elusive dream? Regardless of whether truth is or is not discernible, ancient Chinese thinkers understood that there must be some standard by which behavior, behavior should be measured. In his essay, Tianzhi, The Will of Heaven, the 5th century BC philosopher Muanzi wrote that, quote, if men do not do what heaven desires, but instead do what heaven does not desire, then heaven will likewise not do what men desire, but instead do what men do not desire. Therefore, the sage kings of antiquity sought to understand clearly what heaven and the spirits would bless, 
and to avoid what heaven and the spirits hate. And this is why they work to promote what is beneficial to the world and eliminate what is harmful. Close quote. So Monza argues that heaven, perhaps the closest Chinese notion of a supreme governing power, has a normative plan for all existence and even punishes those who contradict that plan. In another passage, he insists that, quote, the will of heaven to me is like a compass to a wheelwright or a square to a carpenter. The wheelwright and the carpenter use their compass and square to measure what is round and square for the world, saying, what fits these measurements is right, what does not fit them is wrong, close quote. So put more simply, Moza maintained that there does exist a higher law or a measure by which humans are accountable and by which they are rewarded and punished. Other Chinese thinkers were not so convinced of our actual ability to know the difference between round and square. The Taoist philosopher Zhuangzi, for example, argued that human understanding was more relative. His position on truth is famously illustrated in his passage on, the dream, on, on dreaming that he is a butterfly. Quote, Once upon a time, Zhuangzi dreamed that he was a butterfly, a butterfly flitting about happily enjoying himself. He didn't know that he was Zhuangzi. Suddenly he awoke and he was palpably Zhuangzi. He didn't know whether he was Zhuangzi who dreamed of being a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming that he was Zhuangzi, close quote. Zhuangzi's butterfly dream represents China's highest level of suspicious, suspicion regarding the human ability of apprehending reality. But most people who quote this passage do not include what he said next. Immediately after recalling his dream, Zhuangzi asserts that, quote, between Zhuangzi and the butterfly, there is certain to be a distinction. This is called the order of things, close quote. In other words, even though he is suspicious of our ability to know the ultimate truth of reality, he insists that distinctions exist. Truth exists. Zhuangzi suggests that knowledge is relative, but he is not a relativist. Muanzi held that there is a divine standard by which all must abide, and Zhuangzi believed that ultimate standards are ultimately unknowable. Neither were particularly pragmatic. For a more pragmatic philosophy, we must turn to another early Chinese text, the Shu Jing, or Book of History. I always find myself returning to history. This work contains a myth of a great flood. In Chinese, it's called the Da Hong Shui, which covered vast portions of the earth. The ruler first called upon Gun to alleviate the waters, but Gun resisted the nature of water by constructing dikes that gave way. Gun's son, Yu, however, was more enlightened. Unlike his father, Yu examined the nature and laws of the waters and, as the book of history recalls, quote, opened the passages for the streams throughout the nine provinces and conducted them to the sea, close quote. In other words, taming the floodwaters was only possible after Yu learned to obey the laws of nature. Laws that result in success and failure depending on whether one conforms to what is correct and incorrect. So to summarize my points so far, China has, until recent centuries, 
believed in a definitive truth superintended by a divine heaven that rewards or punishes those who obey or disobey its precepts. To put all this into a Western framework, we might turn to the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, whose ideas, I think, were summarized well in Ernst Cassirer's work on the philosophy of human culture. According to Aurelius, quote, both the universal order and personal order are nothing but different expressions and manifestations of a common underlying principle, close quote. Freedom, according to both the classical Western and Eastern understandings, is not a freedom to follow one's own designs without consequences. For both China and the West, there was an understood power that monitors and encourages obedience to a divine law. Truth and the taming of floodwaters could not be separated without unwanted results. So I'll return to Rousseau, Aristotle, Muadza, and Zhuangzi in a while. But let's turn now to a, the question of religious freedom as understood in recent history. In the realm of secular thought, the 18th century British, I guess Scottish, moral philosopher and economist Adam Smith was among the early advocates for what we now imagine as religious freedom. In his Wealth of Nations, Smith argues that allowing people to freely practice their own religious tradition promotes two salutary benefits in any free society. It helps prevent civil unrest, and it moderates intolerance. He writes that, quote, the interested and active zeal of religious teachers can be dangerous and troublesome only where there is either but one sect tolerated in the society or where the whole of a large society is divided into two or three great sects, the teachers of each acting by concert and under a regular discipline and subordination. Close quote. So Smith's concern is not that religions share space on the same national landscape, but that religious leaders exert contentious zeal or that one or two religious traditions dominate the other minority belief systems. Smith exemplifies the pragmatic view held by most secular societies today, which prioritize social harmony over religious truth. Christians, I should say most Christians, attempt to navigate between the understood need for social harmony in our present pluralist society and the knowledge that Christianity is the only true religious reality. How then have Christians traditionally articulated their vision of religious freedom? When the Protestant missionary in China and professor of history at Nanjing University, Minor Searle Bates, published his book, Religious Liberty and Inquiry, in 1945, he defined religious freedom in these words. It is in, quote, absence of compulsion or restraint, close quote. And in more positive terms, Bates suggests that genuine liberty, quote, requires a choice of good aims or objects, close quote. True freedom, he insists, cannot choose to, quote, do what is evil. As a Christian, Bates cannot merely support religious freedom as a means to attain social harmony, but it must, moreover, be directed to the good. Freedom, then, is confined to the structure of a moral law. 
The American television personality of the 1950s, Bishop Fulton Sheen, expressed Bates' a notion of religious freedom in slightly different terms. Quote, the center of our being then is not ourselves, he affirms, but in God. The secret of our freedom then is not in choice, but in goodness, close quote. Sheen supplants the secular notion of freedom as an openness to choices and places it in its proper context within the context of goodness as willed by God. At the Second Vatican Council, the Council Fathers declared that all persons, quote, are to be immune from coercion on the part of individuals or of social groups and of any human power in such wise that no one is to be forced to act in a manner contrary to his own beliefs whether privately or publicly, whether alone or in association with others within due limits, close quote. So, religious freedom forbids coercion. The council, however, continues to avow that this principle, quote, leaves untouched the traditional Catholic doctrine on the moral duty of persons and societies toward the true religion and toward the one church of Christ. Close quote. Well, one might not agree with the Catholic doctrine that it is the, quote, one Church of Christ, but one cannot miss the Council's implication that religious liberty in no way detracts from authentic, even insistent belief. The historical and consistent Christian understanding of religious freedom is the unrelenting view that religious coercion is never acceptable equally unacceptable is the position that God's reign must be attenuated or compromised for the sake of social harmony. In Ev Congar's summoning book, Jesu Christ, published in 1965, he emphasizes forcefully that for Christians there can be no other view than that, quote, the lordship of Christ is total and absolute. This is, he reminds his reader, consistently affirmed in the Old and New Testaments. In addition, Congar recalls that God's reign is connected often to his role as creator. In Colossians 1.16, we read, quote, For him were created all things in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, close quote. And of Christ's kingship, sacred scripture is replete with examples. Revelation 1.8, for example, Quote, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Close quote. 1 Corinthians 11.3 begins with the assertion that, quote, Christ is the head of every man. Close quote. And quite strongly, St. Paul's letter to the, to the Romans exclaims, quote, For this is why Christ died and came to life, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Close quote. The Hebrew Bible, too, repeats this theme. Isaiah 33, 22, quote, The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king, close quote. Finally, Jesus himself said to his fathers, quote, Whoever has my commandments and observes them is the one who loves me, close quote. There is little room, it seems, for a Christian adherence to sacred scripture without an obedience to God and his laws. This is perhaps why thinkers such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau grew increasingly distant 
from the confinements of Christian moral teaching. Rousseau was born a Calvinist, later rejected Calvinism for Catholicism, and finally rejected Catholicism for what he termed a natural religion, based on his observations of the natural world. In Rousseau's understanding of nature, the imposition of a divine law, such as the one imposed on us by the God of Jewish and Christian scripture, was the antithesis of his own preferred idea of amour de soi, a kind of positive self-love, influenced largely by a natural impulse towards self-preservation. Surrender to a notion such as the kingship of Christ was, according to Rousseau, a forfeiture of the kingship of humanity, which was one of the calling cards of the French Revolution. To return to Eve Congar, Congar's theology of the reign of God, which he placed above the sophisms of the French Revolution, can be summarized in one of his central assertions. Quote, Christ, our leader, is enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He reigns here below the church, but his kingship is still disputed on earth until God has put his enemies under his feet. Close quote. While Christ is indeed the divine ruler over all creation, the world, as Congar continues, quote, is in ignorance of the lordship of Christ and more or less seriously resists it. Close quote. This complex matrix of ideas contends human freedom against religious freedom and human kingship against divine kingship. So it might help at this point if I back away from these debates for a moment and offer an example of how creation suffers when humanity places itself above the creator. Among the, theory, the, among the clearest thinkers about human freedom from a Christian point of view is the Greek Orthodox theologian, Metropolitan John Zizuda. In one of his essays, he engages the contradictory nature of contemporary, human, of contemporary ideas of human freedom, interrogating the now common belief that one should be free to choose her or his continued existence. He recalls hearing a young person exclaim, quote, no one ever asked me whether I wanted to be born, close quote. Zizulus writes, quote, we believe that we must be able to choose between two or more options and that we must have our say, our say at every step of life. Quote. Put another way, he recognizes that modern persons define freedom as the ability to say yes or no to a given choice, even regarding one's own existence. Zizulus calls out the reckless logic of such an idea. Quote, you cannot say no to your own existence, or if you could, you would cease to exist and your freedom would disappear with you. Simply said, we are not ultimately free to make any decision, for choosing non-existence as a, quote, free act is necessarily to eliminate freedom, which relies upon being in a state of existence. What concerns Zizulus and me even more than unreasoned notions of freedom are the frightening results of the abuse of human freedom, especially on our environment. So to be blunt, I suggest that human freedom as we, employ it, as we employ it has become a threat to creation. Zizula speaks of humans as, quote, created with freedom, 
and humanity may set itself, quote, for the world or against it. Rather than interpreting humanity's dominion over the earth as a mandate to rule over creation, Zizulus asserts that this implies that human persons are rather, quote, made responsible for it. He relates this statement to the assertion in Genesis 1.26 that humans were created in the image and likeness of God. The early church fathers interpreted this in several ways, but one of the dominant views was that, as Zizulus puts it, quote, man will, of course, wish to create his own world, analogous to the way God creates, close quote. What separates humans from animals, according to an Eastern Christian point of view, is not that we are aware of our own existence and animals are not. This appears to be true of animals as it is of humans, though perhaps to a lesser degree. But that Zizulus insists, quote, an animal cannot create a world of its own. This is only a possibility and a temptation for man, close quote. One of the significant ways that we are like God then is that we too share God's ability to create, the difference being that we cannot create from nothing as God can. The privileged human position as, in a fashion, co-creator produces not only a rich potential for wholesome human creation on earth, but also affords humanity the freedom to distort this privilege and threaten the creation with which we have been entrusted. As Zizulus expresses, expresses this idea, quote, to demonstrate his freedom, man can either deface the world until perhaps he eventually destroys it, or he can take it and affirm it of his own free will, close quote. Properly understood, from a Christian view, freedom should only be exercised properly confined to God's will and design. Among the most alarming problems today, as I see it, is that humanity has placed its own desires above God's intended purpose, and the, create, and the creature has largely rebelled against the creator. Zizulus laments, and I share his lament, quote, it is particularly crucial to say this now, that we really have become a threat to our natural environment as a whole, close quote. An important element of genuine religious freedom, then, is the co-creative duty of humans toward creation. So, I've spoken so far largely about moral freedom and the reign of God, which is an inseparable component of religious freedom. But the center of my interest here is really on religious freedom. So I'll turn now to China as a venue for exploring uh, this subject. China has strayed far from its early notion of a divine law by which humanity measures its behavior as right or wrong, and by which it is judged and rewarded or punished. Zhuangzi's distrust of ontological or hermeneutical certainty has also been discarded for the vicissitudes of political ideologies that valorize state jurisdiction over even the slightest possibility of a divine purpose. To safeguard the state's control of religious belief while retaining a patina of tolerance China's constitution is carefully articulated. Article 36 of the Constitution of the People's Republic of China asserts, quote, no state, public organization, or individual may compel citizens to believe in or not to believe in any religion, nor may they discriminate against citizens who believe in or do not believe in any religion. The state protects normal 
religious activities, close quote. In other words, religious freedom is predicated on the laws of the state and no other entity and empowers state officials who have an admitted agenda to eradicate religious belief to discern what religious beliefs are, quote, normal. Whereas America culturally submits itself to majority vote as if truth or God were swayed by majority vote, China enforces the state's vision of social harmony by means of constitutional decrees formulated by a single party and a, and a small number of invested party members. So Christians have intellectually struggled with such a paradigm. If governments are afforded such rights, what then are the rights of God? China's officials have accurately perceived the inevitable antagonism between secular states and Christians, even if some Christians ignore those oppositions. Sacred scripture affirms God's authority over all human agencies, even those endowed with political power. More than once, we are told in scripture that Jesus Christ is the, quote, ruler over all the kings of the earth. Clearly, the dilemma for China's officials is to, on the one hand, allow for what it declares to be religious freedom, while knowing that some religions, such as Christianity, affirm quite clearly that God's reign eclipses the whims of any state and even any majority. Medias, majorities, trends, and tyrants are ultimately powerless, according to Scripture, to change or even reinterpret God's reign and freedom to choose one's contrived or desired reality over the one created by God is, in the end, folly. So at this point, I should state my position uh, clearly. From an authentic Christian point of view, there is no religious freedom without an underlying understanding that while, one, that while no one should be coerced into believing in Christianity, there is always present the reign of God, whose laws arbitrate all material and spiritual reality. In his encyclical Libertas Humana, or On the Nature of Human Freedom, Pope Leo XIII wrote this, quote, The binding force of human laws is this, that they are to be regarded as applications of the eternal law, as in the principle of all law. Where a law is enacted contrary to reason, or to the eternal law, or to some ordinance of God, obedience is unlawful, lest, while obeying man, we become disobedient to God. Close quote. I do not intend to pit humanity against God. Such an understanding of the relationship between creator and creature would be distorted. The aim of Leo XIII's assertion is to suggest an appropriate hierarchy of obediences, placing God's reign above human reign, inasmuch as human reign contradicts God's intentions. When the Maoist Red Guards uh, struggled against, their word was doujang, struggled against the 80-year-old Chinese pastor in Beijing, in 1966, they held a distorted view of freedom. Without recourse to God's word and will, the pastor's insistence on the reign of God was a threat to their own radical adherence to a contrived ontological reality, 
one that located human will above divine will. The pastor's voice was too uncomfortable for them, so it was silenced beneath several layers of soil. The apparent rivalry between religious freedom and the reign of God remains an enduring challenge to the intellectual project of our time, which seeks to dismantle such rivalries by, con- by declaring them constructed. When Jacques Derrida attacked the work of Claude Lévi-Strauss, calling it little more than bricolage, he called into scrutiny the human ability to settle upon ultimate truths as nothing more than contrivances that are preconditioned by the limits of our language. Quote, the limits of our language, Ludwig Wittgenstein argued, is the limits of our world. And when Michel Foucault and his followers reduced all human reality to two fundamental positions, the empowered and those resisting power, he deliberately or non-deliberately relegated all religious claims to mechanisms of self-empowerment, not unlike Nietzsche's notion of the will to power. I admit that these currents of thought can be useful tools of analysis, but no matter their intellectual force, they do nothing to change the divine reality. Academic theories, academic departments, and academic publications can offer much to our better understanding of God's will and reign, but they do nothing to change divine reality. To God's will and reign, we are free if freedom is simply defined as the ability to select between choices, to disregard or disagree with the notion or reality of God's existence and kingship. But for those of us who are Christians, we are bound to the necessity of discerning God's God's will and laws, and bound to the necessity of acquiescing to them. But allow me to insert one important detail. All of what I have said so far about religious freedom and the reign of God must be understood in consideration of the cornerstone of all God's laws, mercy. In the epistle of James, we read this critical assertion. So speak and so act as people who will be judged by the law of freedom. For the judgment is merciless to one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over over judgment. Close quote. Here is a typical Christian belief that amuses the theorists of the so-called linguistic term. Scripture speaks here of the law of freedom. And, paradoxically, God's judgment shall shall show no mercy to those who show no mercy. But for Christians, this is precisely the kind of of apparent contradiction that makes perfect sense. So to my conclusion. Such apparent contradictions remind me of Zhuangzi's dream and the enduring challenges of mitigating between freedom and kingship. China is a strong example of an intellectual view in our present historical context that places the rights of political contingencies above the rights of a divine reign. Christians, I suggest, should not concede to the reign of anything other than the will of God. But Christian intellectuals must also admit the philosophical challenges of consensus. I'm optimistic that we can make progress toward working this problem out, but we must resist 
the anti-intellectual laziness that prefers entertainment to rigorous thought. I'll end here with references to two Christian intellectuals, G.K. Chesterton and William James. In his work, Heretics, Chesterton wrote this, quote, there are some people, and I am one of them, who think that the most practical and important thing about man is still his view of the universe. We think that for a landlady considering a lodger, it is important to know his income, but still more important to know his philosophy. We think that for a general about to fight an enemy, it is important to know the enemy's numbers, but still more important to know the enemy's philosophy. We think the question is not whether the theory of the cosmos affects matters, but whether, in the long run, anything else affects them." Close quote. Each one of us in this room has a philosophy, a view of the cosmos. And our views influence how we think and how we behave. Whether we view matters as did Rousseau, or whether we are influenced by Aristotle, Jacques Derrida, or Jesus Christ, we are what we think. And in increasingly obvious ways, we are also subject to what governments and universities think. But what of what God thinks? In a lecture by William James entitled What Pragmatism Means, he reflects on a discussion he had with others while camping in the mountains. A dispute uh, centered on an imagined scene. Quote, a live squirrel supposed to be climbing to one side of a trunk, while over against the tree's opposite side, a human being was imagined to stand. This human witness tries to get sight of the squirrel by moving rapidly round the tree. But no matter how fast he goes, the squirrel moves as fast in the opposite direction and always keeps the tree between himself and the man so that never a glimpse of the squirrel is caught." Close quote. The metaphysical problem is this. Does the man ever actually go around the squirrel, or does he only go around the tree? In the end, there were no agreements between the campers. The answer was too elusive. Is knowing God's will like attempting to catch sight of the squirrel in James's allegory? Or has God helped us know his laws in revealed scripture and the faculties of our created and creative intelligence? I'll end with what I'm really attempting to say. I am concerned that Rousseau's ideas have not only created a new secular notion that how we are to behave is subject to majority vote or the vicissitudes of feelings, whether majority opinions or shifting sentiments are right or wrong, has also inflicted, afflicted Christians with the same views and behaviors. Have we forgotten what God has willed for his creation? We may be free to believe what we wish, but are we then truly free? Have we constructed intellectual paradigms that have inserted us into Zhuangzi's dream, uncertain whether truth is what we create or whether it is what we must obey. Mao Zedong famously said once that, quote, political power grows out of the barrel of a gun, end quote. 
Without a genuine surrender to the reign of God, I wonder if Mao's assertion is the only reality to which humanity will default. Or can we, if we are willing, surrender to a better reality, one that requires obedience to laws that challenge our present culture? Thank you. Thank you.